Questions that we had uh, this afternoon um, brought to mind um, uh, a memory of a, uh, of a retreat that I was on uh, quite a number of years ago, maybe um, somewhere in the late 80s, about uh, 10 years ago. And uh, this was at a monastic retreat. Uh, every winter, uh, we uh, generally shut up our, our monasteries. Um, in, this is in the West. Uh, shut the monasteries to overnight guests. And the uh, resident monastic community has its own retreat for two or three months. And uh, one of the, um, the, the features that we have during these retreats to kind of break up the monotony of things <coughs> is to... Um, we have uh, these uh, things called the, the four-hour sitting. <laughs> and uh, the, ru- the rules of the four-hour sitting, which were conjured up by Ajahn Sumedho, were um, that uh, everyone has to be there, and um, the, the sitting would begin at like uh, 1 o'clock or 1.30, whenever it was. And then uh, the rules are that you can change your posture, but but you can't leave the hall uh, until the bell goes, which is four hours later. So these get really interesting. Um, and uh, so on this particular occasion, um, I was it was sort of well into the winter retreat, and I was in a particularly zealous mode. Um, my young and foolish era, and, um, and normally, I, uh, after the the initial sort of years of, of uh, intense pain and so forth, I, I uh, um, managed to be able to to sit for a reasonable length of time without too much discomfort, and um, could manage like a, you know an, maybe an hour without moving and on a, on occasion without any kind of pain at all. Um, but on this uh, this afternoon. Um, we were going to have this four-hour sitting and, and Ajahn Sumedho announced it in the morning and I saw the thought forming itself in my mind um, that um, bearing in mind some of the uh, the uh, great in- endeavors of, uh, and uh, efforts of our spiritual teachers like people like Ajahn Chah and uh, Ajahn Man and his, uh, that whole kind of lineage of the forest, uh, the forest masters and I remember hearing a story of how um, 
um, uh, the first rains retreat that Ajahn Chah did, this was um, when he first became a teacher, um, uh, zealous is not quite the right word. Um, for the entire three months, every night of the, of the, um, the three-month retreat, they had an all-night sitting, which meant that the entire community would sit and meditate all night long, um, or could do sitting and walking meditation every single night they did. And then just to crank it up a little bit more, on the last month of the retreat, then every night they had a, 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 an all-night sitting and no one was allowed to move at all. So I thought, well, we're getting pre- we're pretty wimpish. Yeah, this is really the Dharma ending age, and we're getting pretty slack. And I thought, well, if he can if he can sit up every night, you know, sit without moving every night for a month, at least you know I can sit here for four hours without moving. And then immediately following upon that following upon that thought, there was the 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 next thought was no, <laughs> <laughs> idiot, don't think that. Stop. But it was, it was kind of too late. You know, the, the thought was formed because then, of course, well, and then uh, um, the, uh, the the intensity of panic was so strong. I thought, oh, this is interesting. We've really got a bite there, didn't we? So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll just do this and see what and see what happens. So uh, I um, I saw this this resolution forming in my mind. I would spend the whole uh, whole afternoon just sitting without moving at all. And I'd, I'd sat for like a couple of hours maximum without moving before that time, but just sort of under my own steam, you know, just sort of out of my own volition. Now, you, m- you might have noticed, any of you who ever done uh, Goenka retreats, retreats with in the Goenka style, they have this um, uh, particular element of the practice called maximum determination which means for that particular hour, uh, Goenka is an is a Indian meditation teacher trained in the Burmese tradition. So he um, uses this form of like maximum determination. So it's, 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 he encourages people not to move, but you know, if you have to, then you can. But on, during the maximum determination sittings, under no circumstances whatsoever is one to move. And so you know that as soon as that's the you know the, the clamps are on, <laughs> what happens? You know, and, and Ajahn Sumedho described this himself when he did a, a Goenka retreat when he came to England after ten years in Thailand, and he could sit for like an hour and a half without even blinking normally, and then he said ten minutes into the maximum determination he was in complete <laughs> agony, and uh, of course, um, so for this four-hour sitting, I actually showed up early, being in. <laughs> Being a, a fanatically zealous, sort of starry-eyed zealot at the time, um, and so, but within like five minutes of sitting down, you know, already my knees were burning and my and my back was aching, and I thought, and my mind was in a, a flat panic. <laughs> um, and the, uh, the, the self-preservative mind was kind of screaming and wailing, oh no, this is stupid, don't be an idiot, what are you trying to prove? You're going to hurt yourself, you're going to wreck your knees. And um, so this, the, the afternoon proceeded. So for the first, the, the first hour, I was in con- uh, considerable pain, and this, the mind was just going berserk with, with anxiety and, and projection and... Um, 
struggle. And then after the first hour was finished, then it sort of settled down into a, a kind of a soft whimper <laughs> and a kind of a, an all-encompassing ache. It's everything ached, and the mind, the mind just kind of sobbed, <laughs> whimpered quietly, and it was in this kind of miserable. It was the, it was the, it was the kind of um, perfect incarnation of the poor me <laughs> mind state. Um, as if, you know, I hadn't actually willed this upon myself. <laughs> Somehow I'd been uh, duped into this foolish endeavor, but now I'd you know, made my decision I had to stay with it. So then, after two hours um, of, this, uh, uh, of this state, then, um, and it was just this kind of throbbing ache all over, Suddenly I realized that I was in a room with 60 other people. It was in the meditation hall at, at um, Amaravati Monastery, which is a, quite a... Uh, the monastic community is about 40 people most of the time, and then there'd, there'd be about 20 people would come and help out looking after the winter retreat. Or well, 20 lay people would come. So uh, suddenly it occurred to me, I can open my eyes. I hadn't opened my eyes during that whole time, and I suddenly realized, oh, look. There's other, there, there are other human beings who exist. <laughs> and what was revealed to me at that moment, this flash of insight, was that um, I'd been so obsessed with my own suffering, my own pain, that everyone else in the room had been screened out, and every other being on the planet, every other being in the universe. They'd just gone completely, because all there was was me and my pain. Everything else had evaporated. So that was startling. But wow, look at that. In two hours, not one second, for not one second have I even considered other people in the room or what, what they're going through or other people's difficulties. Because, you know, generally, um, I would found uh, sitting practice much easier than most people. So uh, I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to be um, sitting here experiencing pain and misery, um, if I'm going to be in pain, I might as well, and I'm going to be here for another two hours doing this, I might as well use the time positively or make something, not, not to let the whole experience be a complete washout. So I thought, well, what can I, what can I do uh, while I'm sitting here? I thought, well, because I looked around the room and there was, uh, there was quite a few furrowed brows and <laughs> there was obviously there was some difficulty going on in people's minds. So I thought, well, maybe I just sit here and and just do meta practice, and just spread meta to everybody in the room, and uh, that would be that would be um, a kind, beautiful thing to do. Um, so then, with these two elements, one of, of a, you know, considering that uh, that I wasn't completely alone, and that, that there were other beings as well, and then turning the heart towards this generation of, of kindness and benevolence towards other beings, um, and uh, a kind of um, surrender to my own, the, the feelings I was experiencing. Okay, there's, you know, there's no point struggling, you know, just, just surrender, just going to give up, you're going to be in this kind of, this, this, this uh, throbbing ache is going to be here, the ankles burning, so forth. So be it. Okay, 
at least you know that that'll just be in the background and and you can busy yourself um, bringing forth loving kindness to others. So I started to do this, and then within about ten minutes, a quarter of an hour, I noticed to my amazement that the level of pain started diminishing. I thought well, that's interesting. And uh, then I, I carried on and was just kind of pursuing the, the spreading of matter. And then yeah, another half hour went by, and it was like the pain had really gone right down. You know, to the point where it was just a kind of uncomfortable, soft burning feeling in my ankles. And I thought, this is really amazing. I thought, so maybe the more meta I do, the less pain I get. Hey, that's good. <laughs> 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 Immediately the entire... Um, repertoire of painful feelings came back <laughs> as soon as it, it turned into a deal <laughs> then the, the whole lot came back okay I didn't mean it I didn't mean it all right where was I you know and I got back to the the uh, unconditional benevolence space and um, and I found that the more that that um, I just gave myself to this process and this was when this was when that that, um, uh, that thought that I was describing earlier. If I have to experience this pain for the rest of my life, okay. If I have to experience this la- this pain for the next ten thousand lifetimes, okay. And at the the moment that whenever I could really uh, mean that, I mean, first of all, you just plant the seed as a, a suggestion. But when you can actually mean that, where there's total patience, and patience is not gritting your teeth and waiting for it to be over. That's, that's called extended dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> patience is leaving the world of time behind. Patience is not waiting for something else to happen. Patience is giving up time, giving up the future. And when, when I could do that, and say, okay, well, right now, here is this pain, this is the way it is, I surrender. There, and uh, on the one hand, I'll kind of on the subjective side, and then on the objective, uh, looking outwards towards others, with just generating this quality of, of kindness and, and empathy for the, the suffering that other people were having, then uh, I found that what was happening was that my body was becoming extremely relaxed, and the more relaxed my body became, and the more there was this feeling of benevolence towards others and towards my own body, then the, uh, it seemed to be like the causes of pain in my own body were, were disappearing. Till it finally got to the, the, you know, the last half hour of the session, or like three quarters of an hour or so, and, the, and all feelings of pain in my body vanished. And it wasn't like I was in a kind of super state of concentration. It wasn't like the body, the perceptions of the body had disappeared. It wasn't like a, a third or fourth jhana. And a, a sort of absorbed state. I was, I was not in a state of absorption. But all pain had left the body. And, and to the point where, to my utter amazement, when the bell actually went, when the bell went, after four hours, I was actually disappointed. I was having so much fun. It was so enjoyable to sit in there spreading matter to everybody that I was actually, something, part of me was disappointed. Another part was like, was extremely relieved, like, whew, <laughs> got through that one. But it was really striking, just the, the power of, of uh, 
of surrender and the power of kindness. And uh, when those were really brought to bear, the uh, effect that it could have, because it was not it was not willpower. It wasn't just kind of gritting my teeth and, and sort of muscling muscling through the the painful experience, but it was that uh, uh, the quality of of, uh, of not wishing things to be other than the way they actually are right now, and at the same time that kind of the heart encompassing the the presence of of uh, all other beings and feeling, opening the heart to the presence of all others and feeling their their joys, their difficulties, their presence, looking beyond yourself. So this is a, a very salutary lesson. You know, and I, I'm not just sort of saying this to kind of um, to say, you know, look at me, I'm wonderful. But I was, it was almost kind of um, watching somebody else doing it. <laughs> it was like an amazing thing that could happen to, to any human being. What it showed, what it, it showed me was that the the contrast between when the mind is is caught up in clinging and in self, like me and my pain, there was, it was unmitigated misery. <laughs> it was just completely miserable. And that when that when the clinging stops, and then when we we open the heart, we we are able to just surrender to the present, surrender to the, the feeling that's there, then um, on the, uh, on the uh, emotional level, we're not creating any suffering out of it. And even on the, f- and then the amazing thing that even on the, that would feed back into the physical level where the body actually stopped creating the, the painful feeling itself. So what we're looking at is the relationship between the mind in the, the clouded state and the mind in the clear state. The relationship between the mind which is clinging and the mind which is free from clinging. The mind which is entangled in birth and death. The mind which is, which is free from birth and death. Because that, that, uh, the, the, you know, the, the first half of that experience was, you know, it was very much the, the, the death experience. The, you know, I don't want this, this is bad, this is wrong, I hate this, this is terrible. It was, uh, you know, the worst thing that could be. So the, um, the, the teachings that the, the, the Buddha gave about this, on this subject, are probably the, if, you, if any teachings at all could be given the title of the the essence of Buddha Dhamma, certainly within the Theravada tradition, um, is these very teachings, which uh, which uh, constitute that, because uh, and this was the very process that the Buddha had insight into during the the night of his enlightenment. It was this um, this pattern, which is known as. Uh, to use another more Buddhist jargon, dependent origination. This very pattern was what the Buddha um, investigated and, and finally understood for the first time and understood completely right to its very core uh, during the, the night of his enlightenment and then during the, the weeks after the enlightenment when he was um, sitting meditating alone um, 
reviewing the experience that he'd had and the, the knowledge that had arisen. This is what he was looking at, was, was a dependent origination. The relationship between the, the pure mind, the awake mind, and the, uh, how ignorance arises and how ignorance leads to you know, all of... an ignorance meaning not, not, a, uh, not meaning a kind of an absence of facts, but ignorance meaning uh, not truly knowing, not being awake. In the Pali, it's avijja, literally not knowing. Vijja is knowing, avijja, not knowing. And that this is uh, understanding this process, learning about this process and understanding it, really gives, gives us the, the, um, the essence of the, of the Dhamma. And this is the, the liberating teaching. Because um, what we're doing is looking at, what's, uh, looking at what the cause of dukkha is, what's actually creating that anguish, that feeling of wrongness. Where is that coming from? enabling us to, to see that, to spot that, and then to know what to do with it. When we see that that, that uh, wrongness is being generated by the feeling of self-centered craving. Oftentimes it's translated as desire, tanha as desire, but, but desire is a very, very broad term in English. And it can, you can have desire for things that are completely wholesome, like you can have a you know, desire for enlightenment, or desire to help other beings, desire to be free from selfishness. And these are these are wholesome desires, um, and as well as obviously having being able to have unwholesome, unhelpful desires. So probably desire is not the most useful way of translating it. So something like craving is probably a better word because the word tanha in Pali has this intrinsic sense of agitation, of self-centeredness, of obsessiveness possessiveness, it's got that, that edge to it. So you, you can't possibly have tanha for enlightenment or, or tanha to help other beings or tanha to, to um, be free from selfishness. You know, the, the, it's, a, it's a kind of a, an oxymoron, you can't, you can't put those words together. So it's, th- this is the the factor that the Buddha pointed to as being the culprit. This is the element of our nature which is the, tr- which is the troublemaker, which causes the difficulty, that, that self-centered craving. And, and then also pointing to the fact that it is entirely possible for us to let go of that, to abandon that, to not generate that, to not be dominated by that. And when we, we do that, when we are able to recognize that, and let go of it. Then, right there, is the, uh, that's where we find the, the dukkha evaporating. Oftentimes we think of, of suffering or, or my problems as some kind of having a kind of metaphysical existence, a sort of nebulous cloud of my troubles, my stuff, that's there, <laughs> kind of waiting, and every time, every time you turn around it's, uh, it's l- loitering, lingering for you. But uh, what the Buddha's teaching points us to is the fact that that's just an, an illusion, and that you know, right where the suffering arises, that's where it ceases. Where the, where the feeling of if the feeling of, of wrongness or of alienation or struggle, if it's associated with a physical feeling, 
that's where it arises from, that's where you let go of it. When you let go of it at that point, then it ceases. That, and at, that, at that moment, then there is no, du- there is no dukkha. Suffer the, where, where the fire is burning, that's where you put it out. Wherever you, if you, wherever you itch, that's where you scratch, Ajahn Chah used to say. Like, he's very good on these earthy metaphors. <laughs> You know, so that it's not as though dukkha has some kind of um, etheric existence or some kind of life of its own. When we stop creating it, the trouble stops. So what we're doing here during this week is really mapping that process of of uh, how this works. And moment after moment, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, this is what we're seeing, is, uh, is this very process of dependent origination. Now, I, I don't want to get too uh, technical, but the reason why I thought it, it's, it's very important to, to put this across is because this really is the... the um, the crucial element in the practice, like I was mentioning earlier, like right view is in ter- seeing in terms of, of uh, the Four Noble Truths. And this is really what it means, it's like being able to spot where we're creating dukkha, where, where um, the difficulties are, whether it's emotional, psychological, physical, internal, external, and knowing what to do with it, knowing how to let go of it. So. Um, it might sound very technical, and these sort of chucking in handfuls of Pali words here and there, but these, this is the most useful set of tools for us to, to work with our own, our own hearts, our own minds. Maybe to give a, uh, another example of, uh, of how this process works and what I, I mean by it. The, um, once upon a time, um, probably about 20 years ago or so, in uh, Gold Mountain Monastery in San Francisco, which is a, a Chan, Chinese Chan monastery. Um, this was a monastery founded by uh, uh, Master Xuanhua back in about 68. And it was in an old mattress factory in the, down in the Mission District. Um, that they'd uh, rigged up and turned into this uh, meditation monastery. And in those days, Master Wad uh, um, had attracted a, quite a large gathering of, of uh, Western nuns and monks as, as his uh, disciples. Um, and uh, he was an extremely you know, rigorous teacher. He even made uh, Ajahn Chah in his early years look a bit of a wimp. So they, uh, And so they had a, a, very, a very strict adherence to the monastic rule and very, very strict um, regime of meditation. Anyway, um, in those days, um, the, uh, they, were, they lived on arms and they, they were pretty poor and they, they, the, uh, the Sangha members used to go out scavenging through, um, scavenging through kind of dustbins and dumpsters and going around restaurants and getting leftover food and stuff. And, um, so that uh, oftentimes there was a certain hunger in the air. 
And one of the monks was this uh, this uh, guy who was um, had uh, spent a fair amount of time in the U.S. Navy, and he was about he was a big lad. He was about six foot six, and um, had an appetite to match. And uh, he was a, a novice at this time, and uh, so he. Uh, He was still, uh, um, being a novice, he was able to use money. And so, even though he had a reputation for being a, a champion scavenger, uh, on this particular day, he'd, he, um, he had uh, somehow or other, somebody had given him some money, and, um, and he had uh, resorted to hitting the pie shop with his small amount, his, the few dollars that had come to him. He, uh, he went to the pie shop and, and uh, following the rule very strictly uh, as we do about eating only in the morning, he'd, uh, he'd gone into the pie shop and, and bought as many pies as he could eat, well, a few more pies than he could eat, and had just um, filled himself <coughs> with these, all, all these different kinds of, of pies, <laughs> and the vegetable pies and fruit pies, and, until he was absolutely uh, up to the eyeballs in, in all his... Uh, Food fantasies. <laughs> he, he could not get any more in. And so he, while he was in the shop, he was having a grand old time and putting all this stuff away. And then he, um, but he, he realized he couldn't eat any more. And, there was st- um, and uh, by the time he got to the last one, he was beginning to feel a little bit embarrassed and, um, about his, uh, his greediness. And anyway, he, he sort of had one pie left, and he, he had that shoved in his uh, in a inside pocket, and, and he kind of snuck out of the shop and made his way back to the monastery, and uh, hoping that no one had noticed that he was, had been missing. And, uh, <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, it's difficult to kind of sneak around when you're six foot six. <laughs> but anyway, he, uh, he got back to the, to the, uh, the monastery and sort of busied himself and went around his... Uh, the run of act- daily activities and, and uh, hope no one noticed that he'd been missing for the morning. Nobody said anything and, and he went about his, uh, his day. But the feelings of, of guilt and remorse and this incredible weight in his stomach was weighing him down and he couldn't stay awake during the sitting. He was kind of bobbing this way, lurching over here, <laughs> just trying to digest this mass of pastry and fruit and veg in his gut. So anyway, and he was getting really, really depressed. Oh, you're so stupid. When are you going to get, get beyond your cravings? And you're totally dominated by your greed. And you know how the, the whip comes out and we give ourselves a good lashing. So uh, he said, I'm never going to do that again. That's the last time. From now on, I vow I'm never going to uh, follow my greed. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's all over. That's the last time. I'll never touch money again. I'm determined to forsake pies forever. <laughs> so with all these, these uh, solemn resolutions, um, at about three o'clock, by, uh, by five o'clock, to his own amazement, he's starting to think about that last pie. <laughs> <laughs> and then he thinks, this is crazy, you're mad. Two hours ago you were swearing you were never going to touch another one for the rest of your life. And it, I have got that other pie. <laughs> You know, you know these voices, right? <laughs> so um, the rest of the day proceeds, and then it goes into the the evening medi- the evening meditation, and then 
the uh, the master's master's Dharma talk. He was giving commentaries on the sutras, and and uh, and by this time, you know, the, he's digested most of the rest of the pies, and and he's sitting there, and the, during the meditation, he's starting to salivate, and he's saying, "I don't believe it. This is terrible. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it." That pie stays in the bag, and then all through the master's Dharma talk, and uh, you know, of course the evening. Uh, uh, the evening session is an exegesis on the, the you know the, the karmic disasters that come with with pursuing greed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the the saliva is beginning to flow like crazy, and and uh, and finally the master finishes his talk, and everyone starts everyone goes off to retire. And uh, this monastery, they they, they and they still at, at Master Hua's monasteries, they don't lie down to sleep at all. You know, just, uh, even Master Hua would just kind of had this sort of kind of packing crate that he. He'd sit up all night in. <laughs> if you're under 10 or you're over 70, you can lie down. Otherwise, everyone sits up at night. Anyway, so they, they can retire to their respective crates for the night. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then uh, this, this particular monk is called Hung, Hung Ju, is his name. Uh, then took up, up the, the fire escape because this was an old mattress this old factory had a flat roof and so he thought he'd go up on the roof and, and you know that, that feeling where this is just I, I can't stand it it's just I, I can't bear being with this craving any longer I'm just going to do it and, and get it over and done with publish and be damned just get out of the way and forget it just, I know this is totally stupid but I'm going to do it anyway <sighs> so he climbs up and gets onto the roof and and by this time, along with this kind of the feelings of, of um, remorse and, and, and criticism, his heart is starting to pound and the saliva is flowing. And, and then he, he tucks himself in behind the, the chimney stack, uh, very gently removes the last berry pie out from the bag, and with quivering hands brings it up to his mouth and takes a huge bite. And he, this is nirvana. <laughs> bliss. Utter bliss. And this, this incredible ecstasy washes through him as he, as he chomps onto this fruit pie. Then, he hears the sound of footsteps. <laughs> now, no one ever, ever went onto the roof of the building. And let alone in the middle of the night. This is about 11 o'clock at night by this time. So he hears footsteps and he oh God, what's this? And so he immediately kind of shoves the pie in his, in his, back into his pocket and, and sort of leaps up and, and starts doing walking meditation. <laughs> and in the <laughs> very nonchalant, you know, oh, just happened to be up on the roof in the middle of the night doing my walking practice. And in, in China, they, uh, they, they do walking meditation differently from this tradition. They, they walk around in a circle around the meditation hall. So he kind of... Hands, hands tightly together, eyes down, starts doing his walking meditation around the perimeter of the, of the roof. So then this other figure he sees, uh, also eyes down, hands firmly clasped, starts doing walking meditation in the opposite direction. And, so, uh, and he can't quite make out who it is, and as they, as they converge, he suddenly is, he, his heart starts to pound, he realizes, oh God, it's the master. <laughs> oh dear. So... Um, they, uh, they cross once, and they cross a second time at the other end. And, th and by, this, by the time they're about to cross for the third time, his heart is going about you know, 200 beats a minute. 
sweat is pouring down him. He's about to break into a million pieces, and then, and then as they meet, the master stops and looks up at him because he's he's quite short. And he looks up and says, with a huge grin on his face, and says, "How does it feel?" He says, "Eat your pie." And then patted him on the back and left him to it. This is a true story. <laughs> so, um, right here in this this little incident, this is what this is what we have uh, a, a wonderful depiction of dependent origination. Because um, how it works is when when there's when the mind is clouded, when there's ignorance, when we don't see clearly, then when we see or hear or feel or smell or taste or touch something, then we, we can't leave that alone as just a, a, pla- a pleasant feeling, you know, the deliciousness of eating a pie or, or, or a painful feeling. We can't just leave a pain in our leg alone. The, the mind grabs hold of it. The, the feeling then conditions craving. Vedana condition, there's the sense contact, something is perceived, and then a feeling arises from that, and then the mind, the mind grabs a hold of it. So if it's a pleasant feeling, it's like, I want more, another, you know, another bite, another, another look, another feel, another one. Um, because this one is so good, another one will be better, <laughs> more of the same. So then, and similarly, if it's a painful feeling, it's like, oh God, I can't stand this, this is terrible, I've got to get away from this, this shouldn't be. So that we, 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 we uh, get swept in this wave of, of craving, of tanha, and then the craving then conditions clinging, the mind kind of, where first of all it's just a wave of, oh, I can't stand this, or oh, I've got to have some more of that. It's then the more deeply we are lost, then the, the more the mind clamps onto that particular thing. And so craving conditions clinging. We kind of, we, you know, we pick it up, we take a hold of it, we grasp it. We, we, uh, and then the clinging then, which is called upadana, the clinging then conditions becoming, which is that state where the mind is completely absorbed in that. It's like, there is nothing in the universe except berry pie. <laughs> or there's nothing in the universe except this ache in my leg. Uh, that the, the mind has, has become that. We have, we have become that. You have become a pain in your leg. You have become that um, conviction that if I could just get this, then I'll be happy forever. You know that feeling? Oh, dear, dear God, I'll never ask for anything ever again if you'll just give me this. I promise. If I could just have this, I'll be happy. You know, if only she'd love me, if only he'd leave me, <laughs> I'll be happy. I think we've all been through this a few times. And in that moment, we really believe it. Well, we, at that time, we've, we've become, that, whole, that urge has become the, the limits of our universe. And so as, as Hung Chu bit into the pie, that the, the consummation of becoming is that moment of gratification. In fact, well, it's really just the moment before 
the gratification hits. That's what the entire consumer culture runs on. That, that moment of the, I've got it, yes! That's, that's what everything runs on. The thrill of like riding the wave. As uh, um, Jean was talking about, uh, is Jean here? That's Jean. There she, is. Yeah, she was talking about uh, going to high school in Huntington Beach. If any of you have ever been down there, on the beach there's this statue of, a, of this uh, teenage youth, kind of beautiful bronze statue right by, uh, by the, on the seashore, of this teenage uh, youth on a surfboard, kind of just riding a wave. Like, sort of, that's becoming. <laughs> it's the, the, the epitome of becoming is that you're cresting the wave and it's absolutely what you want. You've got what you want. So that's what is the, uh, the, the addictive drug that, that keeps us going. Um, because then becoming, uh, the next stage after becoming is birth, which is the moment of no turning back, where the, the deliciousness has, has passed, uh, that, that moment of impact has passed, and now you get the rest of the deal that you just signed for. Like the, uh, with birth, it's just like giving birth physically, then you have the lifetime of your offspring that you're then in relationship with them for. And uh, as we are, and not all of us have had children, but we, are, we all have been children. <laughs> and we know how long a relationship with one's parents lasts. <laughs> Anybody here who, who's not having a relationship with their parents, <laughs> even if they're dead, it goes on. So that birth, is symbolic of, of um, that the, all of the karmic consequences of, of the thing that we followed, the addiction that we have amplified and continued, the, the frailty that gives us, like, say, in terms of getting away from pain, that feeling, I can't stand it, it's too much, I can't bear it, this is ridiculous, I'm going to move. And then when you just shift your posture, I, I, and what I'd find in my legs, what, what, what would happen would be my legs would go dead and they'd be really aching and all I have to do is just like lift myself like half an inch just to let the blood come back and no one could even see <laughs> in the dim light no one could even see that you were you were kind of relieving the ache and then this incredible joy of ah Nibbana no pain and and then because you'd taken that particular route of, of happiness through escaping from pain, then what happens is that then there's this incredibly delicious moment and, and this feeling of, ah, oh, blessed relief. And then, as soon as the next twinge comes, like, oh no, <laughs> it's back again. And because the way that we dealt with the pain last time was to escape from it, then it makes us more prone to deal with it in the same way. Similarly, the, the, the way we deal with, it, with a craving, an addiction, if we feed it, then it draws us into um, dealing with it in the same way. So we call it, just in ordinary psychological terms, like the cycle of addiction. This is what we mean by the cycle of birth and death, because after birth, what happens is uh, during the aging process and development, there comes um, the, all of the difficulties of living. We, we, we are living through the, the ending cycle, sorrow and in the, the, um, 
um, wonderful Pali expression, Soka Parideva Dukkha Domanasa Upayasa, which um, one of our dear friends um, who often manages our retreats refers to as, uh, these are a few of my favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Soka Parideva Dukkha Domanasa Upayasa. This is what inevitably, along with all of the joys and the glories of, 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 um, of, uh, of things, it's always going to be there when we're born into a situation. And what that means is that, that I mean, it, kind of, it sort of dramatizes it a bit, but it's that feeling of, oh no, you know, like the, the deliciousness of the pie up on the roof. And then the Sokaparideva experience is the, the, the first crunching of the gravel on the roof. <laughs> oh no. You know, when you're caught in the act, and, uh, and even though, you know, the teacher didn't even scold him, he just said, he even said, you know, carry on breaking your precepts. <laughs> Eat your pie, enjoy it, you know. Still, the, you know, the, 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 the death, the kind of sorrow and death experience was there. And what this means is a kind of ego death, where exactly the worst has happened. We're stuck in that same old addiction, we're stuck in the same old pattern, we're stuck in the same old cycle, and around and around and around we go. So when we talk about ending birth and death, not being reborn, this is what it means, is that the ability to not be born into things, so that when we, we feel attraction towards something, we can know, yeah, it's attractive, but I don't need to be, I don't need to pick it up, I don't need to follow it. Or we know that something is painful, uh, we know that, well, it's painful, but I don't have to get rid of it. I don't have to be afraid of it. I don't have to escape from it. And this is where, um, where we work with this cycle. If, it was, if there was no way out of it, if it was just this pattern repeating itself, then <laughs> we all, why not just go to the beach, you know, hit the bottle or have a party, you know. Because, but it's because this is not... Um, this, this, this kind of cycle does not have a, an absolute reality. It can be broken. And the weak link is at the place of where feeling conditions craving. When we can live uh, at the level of feeling, and there's also not, I'm, I'm just using the kind of more graphic um, examples of pleasant and painful feeling, but it can also, it also relates to neutral feeling, just the, the kind of nondescript feelings. Um, that the mind can get caught up in and, and, and tied up with. And the Buddha said that, um, that neutral feeling is actually a, a subtle form of pleasure. Like that uh, the mind attaches to the kind of nu- the numb state or non-pain that uh, we, we still find that you know, vaguely pleasurable. So that this is the point where we aim, the, aim our attention in the practice is that, that level of, of, uh, of feeling. Because when we can train our heart to, to be with the pleasant, or be with the, the painful, or with the, with the mundane, and to, to leave it alone, then we're able to experience life in its fullness. We're no longer, our world does not contract to that self-centered cycle. We're able to live open and aware, uh, uh, attuned to, to reality, where, where we are present for our own life. 
there was a, 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 an incident, I'm not sure if I got all the details of this, but uh, it was um, a story. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho was just recounted a, a little while ago. Um, that took place when he was a, a, a new monk with, with Ajahn Chah, um, uh, around about the time that Jack Cornfield was there with him in uh, the late 60s. And so Ajahn Sumedha was, a, was a, a young monk at this time, and, and uh, it was, um, and this was uh, during a time when you know, Westerners of any kind were a pretty rare species in, in the, this very remote place, province of, of Thailand. And um, because Ajahn Samedi could speak some Thai, and had been there for some time, some t- when, when visitors came to Wat Bapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery, then sometimes he, he'd ask Ajahn Samedi to come out and, and be available to be looked at and to, to talk to people and, and answer questions. Because people are always fascinated, well, why are you, you know, an American with, with, a, t- with a master's degree from a university would come to live in our, our kind of... Um, remote and, and uh, impoverished and unloved province of northeast Thailand. So anyway, one day, um, I believe it was a, a group of, of student nurses from the Ubon uh, Nursing College came to visit, and they would uh, uh, they were brought out by their teachers to uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery to to uh, pay their respects and to to receive some teachings, and. Um, so they, this you know, large group of, uh, of um, very smart, uh, attractive young women, where they have these really fancy um, kind of white and turquoise uniforms, they, the nurses wear in Ubon. And um, you know, monastic life is uh, is a celibate affair, and uh, there will be very few occasions when um, you know the the uh, the monks, particularly junior monks, would be um, in close contact with. With uh, lay people, in general, the, the, the Ajahn, the teacher, does all the, the uh, kind of contact, and the rest of the, the uh, monastic community uh, live very much at a distance. All the, the nuns and the monks kind of keep far away. So anyway, um, Ajahn Chah, having experienced years of, of um, uh, voluminous lustfulness himself, and uh, along with with a, a, a kind of stupendous anger problem and great doubts and uh, restlessness. You know, he developed most of his wisdom through kind of the, uh, through dealing with his own, his own defilements. He was, he was very aware of what the, 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 uh, the sight of, of uh, 20 or 30 attractive young women can do to the mind of a, uh, you know, a celibate young monk. And he was always kind of keen to, to, to sort of test his, his disciples out and see where they're at. So anyway, um, uh, he'd, he'd been sitting there and, and teaching and, and uh, talking to them for, for some time, and then when they all kind of bowed and left, then uh, he said to, to um, the young Sumato, um, sort of turned to him and sort of took a reading. <laughs> so he said, "So Sumato, uh, uh, what did what did uh, what did you make of that? Did you find them attractive?" And uh, also, I should mention, like in in, uh, in Thailand, particularly northeast Thailand, uh, the subjects of of, uh, of sex and death and uh, uh, t- 
toilet activities are, are all very kind of common and easy subjects of conversation. They don't have the kind of taboos about them as we, we have in the West. So Ajahn Chah kind of casually turns to him and says, "Well, Sameda, what did uh, what did that do to your mind? And uh, you know, what did you think of what did you think of them?" And so uh, Ajahn Sameda replied, "Chop down my owl," which means um, I like but I don't want. And uh, Ajahn Chah was so tickled by this reply, he thought he thought this was the most brilliantly dharmic response because. Um, it's it's really important to recognize y- yeah this is you know i'm a young male and and uh, being in the presence of you know being completely apart from 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 away from women for for months and months and years at a time and suddenly being in the presence of of a you know a large number of a, of attractive young women then certain chemicals get released <laughs> bells go off but uh, recognizing, yeah, there is that impact, you know, the eye sees this, and then there's this impact, but yet being able to choose not to follow that. So yeah, that this is the reaction that goes on. I don't need to be drawn in by that. I don't need to follow that. I'm not suppressing anything. Um, I can recognize the, the magnetism there, but, not to, but I don't have to participate in, in following it up or doing anything with it. So uh, Ajahn Chah, if I, for, apparently for for some time, several weeks afterwards, used this chop down my owl as a kind of major theme for his Dharma talks. Because it's exactly that kind of insight into the relationship between feeling and, and how it moves into to, um, the cycle of, of, uh, of attachment and, and uh, getting carried away, getting lost. It's understanding that, seeing how that works. That, uh, is what enables us to be, to, to be liberated. So that when we, we're able to see that, how that works, then it's not like with, with Buddhist practice, we're, trying, we're making ourselves afraid of things that are, are beautiful, like you know, delicious food or, or an attractive person or a, a, a beautiful piece of writing or a beautiful landscape. It's not like, ooh, get back, you know, <laughs> you're going to seduce me, I'm going to get carried away with this. It's not, you're not making the sense world into the enemy. I like this kind of um, idea of, of uh, it's sort of dangerous and uh, attractive, or, or that it's painful and horrible and bad and I want to get away from it, so you're just trying to blot everything out so that you won't feel any pain or you won't feel any attraction. It's not that at all, and I think that's why Ajahn Chah kind of spotted in that simple insight. Yeah, this it kind of encapsulates it very clearly. That... Um, we recognize, yeah, there's, there's uh, aversion, there's that which is off-putting, there's that which is mediocre and mundane, there's that which is attractive. So you, you fully acknowledge the, that those elements, but without making anything of it, without taking it beyond the, the, the level of feeling. And in that way, we can be with the, the pleasures and pains of life, the, the successes and failures, praise and criticism, gain and loss, without being... Um, entangled without getting lost in it. And when we do that, then we're able to, to be fully attuned to life, able to really be with life, and uh, be able to have our, our actions guided by, by kindness, by wisdom, by unselfishness, by generosity, rather than by 
I'm afraid of this and I want to get a hold of that and I can't stand this and well if you ask me about that you know by opinions and, uh, and fears and, and uh, attraction and aversion those qualities no longer dominate our perceptions but we we're guided by a, a much more profound and, and powerful and wonderful uh, source So, I will um, leave these thoughts for you to reflect on this evening. And by the way, any of you who have got candy bars stashed away in your suitcases, <laughs> this day tonight is not for you. <laughs> I'm not a psychic. So, if, if you're sitting there thinking, he knows, he knows. How did he find out? Who told him? They got spies. <laughs> How did he know it was a berry pie? <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> This is a complete coincidence. May you rest easily tonight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>